hats off. If you had what? done five years of study to achieve a PhD, trust me, you'd have a tattooed across your forehead. I would not put it in my username. You're like, oh, did you, you'd make a fucking t-shirt going, would... oh, by the way, did you know? We all know it's true. I might do that. But I wouldn't. Where is your 11th greatest Britain in cybersecurity tattoo, I t- by the way? I, 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 let's move on. Smashing Security, Episode 324, .zip Domains, AI Lies, and Did Social Media Inflame a Riot, with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, Episode 324. My name's Graham Cluley. And I'm Carol Terrio. And this week, Carol, we're joined by a special guest, someone who's been on the show numerous times before. Please introduce him. <laughs> Mark Stockley! <laughs> <laughs> I've just thrown out of steam. You forgot, didn't you? <laughs> What's his face? He's come back. Oh. How you doing, Mark? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, we have a massive show. Should we get it kicked off now? No. Nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we are. Let's thank this week's sponsors, Bitwarden, Collide, and Centripetal. It's their support that help us give you this show for free. Now, coming up on today's show, Graham, what do you got? I'm going to be talking about domains for the Tragically Zip. <gasps> <gasps> Mark, what about you? I've got a story about your worst colleague ever. Ooh. <laughs> and Carol, I guess. Over to you. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about how social media might have ensued a riot. Plus, we have a featured interview with David Ahn. He's the chief architect at Centripetal. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Chums, chums, do either of you have a PhD? Maybe you're too embarrassed to mention it. You know, some people are. They hide it under a bushel. I know people who say they have a PhD and... (laughs) Just the one. (laughs) Maybe don't have one. No, I do not have a PhD. Okay. That's weird because I also know someone that says they have a PhD but doesn't. Isn't that strange? (laughs) What's the opposite of someone who's got a PhD? What are you going to tell us, Dr. Cluey? Um, I, I don't ha- I'm not a doctor. I know you're not, yeah. But I want to say well done to those people who are doctors, those people who've worked hard. I would be very proud if my son, admittedly he's only age 12, but if he, he came home from school one day and said that he'd managed to get the PhD. He did once say that in <laughs> chemistry, I think they'd split the atom or something is what he claimed. I looked at him like, I suspect not. I suspect he just turned on a Bunsen burner. But if he had, if a child of mine or a child of either of yours were to come home one day, maybe as, you know, in their mid-twenties, saying, so finally, after all that hard work and study, I've managed to get the PhD, you would want to celebrate, wouldn't you? You would want to make them a cake. You would want to buy them some beer or bring in the Deliveroo or whatever it might be. Maybe you're thinking, what could be the, what could I give them? What could I give my child, I'm so proud of after getting their PhD. What? Oh, I know. I could get them a domain name. But here's the problem, right? My son, little Marky, Mark, we call him Mark, right? <laughs> Mark.com has already been snapped up. Mark.org. I had a look. Mark.org has gone as well. Mark.org is advertising a four-bedroom house in Virginia with a secluded hot tub. 
Mark WTF. Mark.WPF must be still available. Mark.WTF. Corolla.WTF. We know that one's gone. Very good that website. That one's there. gone. But you know what is available? Mark.PhD. So if you were the kind of person who had a PhD and didn't want people to forget that you had a PhD, which I suspect is most people who choose to tell people they have a PhD. Then oh, stop it. No, I, people, That's not no true. people who choose, people who choose, a bit like uh, John Barrowman, MBE, people who change their Twitter name to include the accolade they've been given by the king or queen. Piss off. If you had what? done five years of study to achieve a PhD, trust me, you'd have a tattooed across your forehead. I would not put it in my username. You're like, oh, did you, you'd make a fucking T-shirt going, would... oh, by the way, did you know? We all know it's true. I might do that. But I wouldn't. Where, I would... where, is, your, where is your 11th greatest Britain in cybersecurity tattoo, I by the way? I, 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 let's move on. Anyway, the thing is, the thing is, I think it's a it's a little bit showy, isn't it? I mean, wonderful, well done on achieving it, but do you want to keep on reminding people about it? Do you actually want to own the domain name? I'm not sure if you do, but now if you wanted if you wanted to be Corolla.phd, yeah, you could. Well, do you know what, Corolla? I've been to the what? website. I've been to Google <laughs> Domains. I've typed in your name, and you can buy one. And it's only going to cost you about twenty dollars a year. And it get this. You don't even have to prove that you have a PhD. No, of course Anyone not. Because well, just the fuck. <laughs> well, <laughs> you don't have to. Anyone can do okay. it. Wow. <laughs> like anyone could buy a website with COM at the end and not own a company. Well, Crazy. well, right. <laughs> now, in the old days, the only way you used to be able to get a PhD other than studying was from a spammer. Because you'd get spammy and saying, would you like a PhD? Would you like a degree? Would you like this? Would you like that? Didn't someone close to you purchase a PhD online? No, I think they became ordained as a religious. Ordained? I think <laughs> I'm sure they told my husband they had a PhD. <laughs> Did I think they? we know who we're talking about. Oh yes. At a dinner party at your house. Oh yes, an elderly lady. An eld an older person. Yeah. I think she bought it from Tony Robbins. I don't think that counts. <laughs> but um, moving on. Um, so, so she also revealed some other things about herself, didn't she? <laughs> um, A pair of problems, yeah. Moving on. <laughs> right. So you can buy a .phd domain from your local friendly internet domain company because at the beginning of May, our chums at Google Domains, they rolled out not just PhD top-level domains, but also seven others, .dad, .prof, for presumably professor, .esq, for esquire, .foo, <laughs> .zip, .mov, and .nexus. Bizarre. Combination. What's foo for? Is foo for food? Oh, it's a programming thing. I love that. Blah, blah, dot foo. <laughs> Why not dot mom? You're wondering. Why not mum, right? Oh, good one. Because it already exists, Crow. It already exists. Oh. So they finally added dot dad as well as dot. Finally, finally, they bowed to consumer demand and finally released dot nexus <laughs> and, and dot dad and dot foo and dot cool and dot love yeah. and dot pizza and dot photography because that's really. <laughs> Nippy to put on the side of a van, and literally hundreds of others you can buy. I wonder if anyone's bought photography. Dot photography. 
and have a subdomain called photography. <laughs> so photography dot photography. Hey, good dot, SEO. Absolutely no? nailed the SEO on that <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> so, Carol, you're one of these people who's bought a bizarre domain because, of course, your art site, everybody go and visit it, Carol.wtf, where you can see a wonderful <laughs> selection of watercolours and ink blotches and things and uh, vote yes, for your favourites. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why did I do that? Uh, purely because any .com domain I could get had a ridiculous name. We have to, it's like we've run out of n- n- name combos that actually make any sense that I could find. Because there are lots. There's a .paris. I found a .london, a .sydney, a .tokyo. No .rome, no .washington, D.C. For some reason, there's a .irish. Oh, you researched a story in depth, didn't you? Hmm? Oh, yeah, I did a lot of research. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that .com has run out, inverted commas, mm-hmm. is because there's so much cachet in having a .com that lots of people have just speculatively purchased yes. a bunch of .com domains, which they will now happily resell to you at vastly inflated prices. So like you normally, you spend you know maybe $10 a year on a .com, but you can go and spend millions yeah. on a name that nobody actually uses but somebody owns if it's a dictionary Mm -hmm. word in particular or a combination of words or a short you know maybe four or five letters or something then it's going to be probably being sold for an awful lot of money so there's lots of these weird top level domains there's some which i think are a bit confusing but there's a dot work and a dot works now that seems to me like there's an opportunity there for some mix-ups you know if you wanted to create a phishing site if anyone did actually run a dot work <laughs> website, there's dot review and dot reviews. There's dot sex and dot sexy. Are domains run by one single entity or not? Is it a collaboration amongst many tech companies? I don't know how it works. There, there is this organisation ICANN, yeah. who sort of I, I think no. I, I think are supposed to oversee these things, but I also think money talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It also smells. Money smells. There used to be like six top level domains. Yeah. And in now, the beginning. Yeah. And it was like .edu, that's for education, .com, that's for commerce. And then at some point, I can't remember what it was, it was like 10, 15 years ago, ICANN went, what if we just allow people to have anything they want, <laughs> provided they spend an absolute fortune? Yeah. And that, that brilliant idea gave us .nexus and .prof and .sexy. And .wtf. And now dot zip mm-hmm. and you may think oh 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 hello mm-hmm. crow have you spotted a problem with a dot mm-hmm. zip domain mm-hmm. <laughs> yep <laughs> right because i think dot zip means something to many computer users as does dot mov m-o-v maybe make you think of a movie file a zip might make you think of an archive file containing other files now according to google the reason why you might want a dot zip domain is they say well Zip, that's really about having a secure domain for tying things together, moving really fast. So if you've got a really fast website, call it .zip. And it's like, well... oh I don't think that they believe that for a second. No. Nope. They absolutely phoned that one in. Can you imagine searching for .zip on your computer as well? You'd find a yes. million... Yeah. Yeah. And .mov, they argue, is for whatever moves you. They've said that's oh. why you want... <laughs> That's why you'd want a .mov domain. Now, so some engineers made a decision and then they threw it over to the marketing department and said, you've got two minutes to come up with a reason why these domains now exist. 
So and the marketing department ran around for two minutes and they went, ah, it moves you. So it turns out some people aren't very happy about this. Um, I'm one of them. Typically people are a bit security conscious. Um, <laughs> people are a bit grumpy because people are saying, yeah. is it in any way possible that cyber criminals and fraudsters might exploit the confusion between what we've known for the last 30 years to be zip and MOV files, and what you've now decided to make a domain name instead. Yep. Yep. Now it means fast. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about the last 30 no, it years. Means whatever moves you. <laughs> whatever moves you. <laughs> because... Well, if it's, if it's fast, I guess it, it would move you. <laughs> so the, the problem, simply put, is that you might receive an email saying, hey, hey boss, here, here's that report you asked for, report.zip. Click on that. And when you click on it, you get taken to some sort of dialogue box, which looks like your company's single sign-on page to validate the file or access the file in some mechanism. And, of course, you're then handing over your credentials to a fishing person. A fishing person. Fisherman. I don't know what they call it. Fisherman. I love that. I think that's going to title. The fisherman. Now, now, this isn't, of course, the first time we've had this kind of confusion because, of course, we all know .com. .com to most people now means website, doesn't it? It means commercial website or at least website, if not commercial yeah, website. I think it does. And mm-hmm. in back, back in ye olde days, .com, well, .com files were the programs you run under 64K on MS-DOS. They were the, the little programs. They, they had .com extensions. I remember at the time thinking, <laughs> you know, I'd just be rather confusing with the internet coming along. Because <laughs> now .com, <laughs> my voice hasn't changed, hasn't broken since. I was going to say. <laughs> so I've come to terms with this now because, of course, .com executable files aren't really used anymore because everyone's moved on to Windows and other operating systems and, you know, they've become obsolete. People aren't using DOS any longer. So maybe it's not much of an issue. But there have been other confusions as well. For instance, if you're a Perl developer, you might deal with .pl files, mm. and .pl is the Polish top-level mm-hmm. domain. I think that's right. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, or shellscript.sh, another legitimate domain. So there, there has been a sort of move to this. But I think going to zip and mob websites, which move you, um, is still another jump entirely. I've got a bone to pick with you. Okay, go ahead. I want to speak to your proto nerdy self. Okay. About these, about these, about these, about these dot, the dot com. Right. Yes. So, so the the dot com TLD was actually yeah. created on January the first, nineteen eighty five. Okay. When was MS DOS out? Come on. That's a good one. I, I'm expecting you to know that. Surely it was about 82, wasn't it, the IBM PC? Okay, MS-DOS first came out. Did 81. August 1981. <gasps> yep. I think you'll find, Mark. <laughs> I think you'll find. I'll concede if you give me a well, actually. Well, <laughs> actually. So, so um, people are a little bit worried about this. Um, a chap from Citizen Lab. He told his Twitter followers, just block all .zip domains. Just block them all. Any .zip and .mov domain, just block them all. He said, these are going to get used. 
100%, he said, malware tax. I don't know if it will be 100%. That seems a little bit excessive. I think mostly right now, most of these domains are yeah. probably being purchased by security researchers, yeah. proving what a stupid yeah. idea it was. <laughs> At the moment, that's about 100%. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I bet people buying them because they're probably cheap. Maybe. And they're like, oh, everyone can remember Zip. you know, And they don't have any understanding of it being in terms of you know security or computers. I'll tell you who isn't buying them. Okay. People who want you to think their website is fast. <laughs> it's just it's just criminals and cybersecurity researchers, and at the moment, it's mostly mostly cybersecurity researchers. Well, one researcher who's done it is a chap called Mister Dox. I don't think he's got multiple doctorates. It's D O X rather than D O C S. Mister Dox. <laughs> he has shared. Thank you. He's shared details <laughs> of a phishing technique that emulates file archive software. So you click on the link which you think is going to open a zip file. It takes you to a zip domain, which looks just like the WinRAR utility, which people use to open zip files. And so it shows you the, the, quote, zips contents, one of which is a PDF, which can then steal your data. And another one, he made it look like Windows File Explorer. And someone also found out that if you send someone an email saying, hey, look, the file's already in your computer, you dolt head, just search for document.zip. Right. When you search for it, the search results come back by opening the web page if it can't find. <laughs> exactly. 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 Doesn't Twitter now also automatically convert anything yes. that ends in .zip into a link? Right. So if you've posted, uh, you know, find the following file and you give the file name of something yeah. .zip or .mov, you'll actually have a clickable link to something potentially malicious, which isn't what the people... so. I don't know why they've done this. It's not like Google are going to make oodles and oodles of money out of this, is it? I don't no. understand why they've done this at all. What was the requirement? And what do you do? What do you do? So let's say, let's say 10,000 people have yeah. bought this domain, right? Yeah. And you're suddenly going, actually, you know what? Graham's right. This is a stupid idea. Let's roll back. Let's go back. <laughs> right. What do you do for them? You go, look, we're going to offer you Zaz instead. <laughs> like what what they did used to be jazz drives didn't they maybe dot jazz do you remember it's an upgrade <laughs> zip drives became jazz drives uh, anyway i i i mean i i think maybe you should block access to these things i, I can't see any legitimate companies going to require them so maybe but, but what's going to come next are they going to do dot html domains how about doing that <laughs> Why not? Why not just go for it? Oh, is that your end joke? <laughs> Why don't they do dot fuck you? <laughs> Mark, what's your topic for this week? Well, you know I like to start with a question. <laughs> so I've got a question for you, Carol. Mm -hmm. So you're a woman working in tech. Mm. Have you ever found yourself working with someone whose unearned confidence was completely disconnected from their actual ability. Hang on. Yes. Perhaps you've met someone who lectured you about a subject <laughs> that you actually knew more about than then. I got Have you splained. ever come across that? I got explained. Yes, I've been explained many times. Anyone you want to mention? Anyone? Nope. Anyone? <laughs> anyone on this podcast? No. No, everyone on <laughs> this podcast are very intelligent, lovely people. Yeah, you've always been wonderful, Mark. Come yeah. On. <laughs> <laughs> nice trap skirt anyway so that's what my story is about today 
It's about the dangers of a brash and overconfident colleague. Now, before I begin, I'm just going to make an apology to any lawyers who are listening, because I am about to leave the safe confines of cybersecurity uh, for a minute or two, and I'm going to I'm going to enter the world of legal machinations. And it's come to my attention that lawyers are very particular about stuff, particularly things yep. like commas. Get your words right. Yep. <laughs> I think it's very important that any lawyers listening realise that under the terms and conditions of this podcast, lawyers and members of the legal profession are not allowed to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just a safety net for us. <laughs> I'm sure that's legally watertight. I'm sure. I'm Probably sure there is. are loads of lawyers listening right now, going, "Well, he's got us there. <laughs> he's absolutely stitched us up. <laughs> Damn him." <laughs> anyway, this concerns a case that went before the, the Southern District of New York. It started earlier this year. The case was brought by a chap called Roberto Matter. And he claims that he was injured in 2019 by a serving cart on an Avianca Airlines flight. Avianca is Colombia's biggest airline. And it's not hard to believe, for me at least, that he might have been injured by one of those carts. Yeah. Because, I mean... Haven't we all? (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? Because they move so slowly down the aisle, particularly if you need the toilet. (laughs) They just roll slowly towards you. And... Every time, like I've, I've nearly lost a foot, I've nearly lost a shoulder, I've nearly lost an elbow, because they have the mass of a, like a, a, a neutron star. It's like a <laughs> yeah, they yeah. carry a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, like seven thousand tiny bottles of vodka. Yeah, Surprising. and dinners. Surprising. And- yeah. Only about three dinners. They always run out of the dinners. They've <laughs> never, ever run out of alcohol. I've never, I've, the number of times I've seen somebody say, oh, can I have the, the sandwich? And they're like, no, sorry, no sandwiches. Lots of vodka, though. Do you want some vodka? <laughs> anyway, so Matter decided he was going to sue Avianca. And the case ended up before SDMY. And during the case, Matter's lawyer, a man called Stephen Schwartz, is a man who's been licensed to practice law in New York for three decades, filed an affidavit in opposition to the defendant's motion to dismiss. So basically, Avianca tried to get the case thrown out. Yeah. And Matter's lawyer wrote a legal document saying, nah, don't don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Right. And in rebutting the motion to dismiss, Schwartz cited eight different legal cases. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's what lawyers do. Yeah. Yeah, they say this is a precedent here. Like, you can't do this. Yep. Now, there was just one small problem. (laughs) Avianca's lawyers read the affidavit mm. and they went back to the judge and they said, um, these cases don't exist. <laughs> no one expects that people are going to check your <laughs> references, surely. So these things like have reference numbers and stuff and case numbers yeah, and all that to, uh, stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. Yes, they're always like somebody versus somebody. And there's a, yeah. I, I don't know the term. There is a, a like a code, a, a docket number or a, a case number or something like that. And so the judge ordered Schwartz to provide another affidavit annexing copies of the actual judicial opinions. So rather than just saying a judicial opinion exists and it's called, you know, somebody hmm. versus somebody, hmm. Schwartz actually had to provide, like, you know, here is the text of the legal uh, judgment that we're, or the All legal right. opinion. Yeah, he's going to have fun at the printer. Yeah. Shouldn't be that hard, should it? <laughs> just photocopy it, All right? Chuck it well, they're, 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 they're surprisingly short. I think they may be excerpts, right. but they're, okay. they're like the meaty, the meaty bit. Like right. this is the thing that proves our case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, so Schwartz did that, 
Uh, in fact, and if you if you go to the website courtlistener.com, you can actually see these responses. And I read them yesterday. Hmm. And there are eight attached judgments, I think, including uh, Varghese versus China Southern Airlines, Shabu versus Egypt Air, Martinez versus Delta Airlines, and a bunch of others. Oh, these are specifically cases involving trolleys on aeroplanes. This is uh, the, well, the little I, food cart from the south. Yeah, you're saying this is not the first time. This has happened <laughs> yeah, before. Food carts, famously vicious. <laughs> right. That's, I, I think, I think, and again, I'm going to get in trouble here, but I think uh, what they are is they're cases where the defendant made a motion to dismiss and it was denied. So I think Schwartz is basically saying, no, you need to deny the motion to dismiss because in these other cases, the judge denied a motion to dismiss. All right. Yada, yada, yada. Okay. Yeah. yeah right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Legal stuff. Nothing to do with munching <laughs> uh, cards. Okay. There was just one small problem. At least six of the cases are pure fiction. They never existed. <laughs> they were, in the words of the judge, bogus judicial decisions with bogus quotes and bogus internal citations. They were completely made up, in other words. So understandably, the court then demanded to know why Schwarzer shouldn't be sanctioned. They basically say, look, you've made up a bunch of stuff. Right. Yeah, outrageous. Why shouldn't we punish you? You're making a mockery of this court. <laughs> yes, but oh, this is a, a legal case. Obviously, the judge wrote that down. And then Schwarzer <laughs> had, to, had to then produce a document with numbers in it to explain himself. And he did. He explained what had happened. And he explained in his document that he'd actually been relying on the work of another lawyer. Okay. And it turns out that that lawyer had been doing what every, <laughs> every lazy English-speaking student has been doing since November the 30th, 2022. Uh -huh. And he'd actually used ChatGPT to do his research. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the thing, the thing I don't get about these flipping cases, right? I get chat GPTs. Great, 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 right? Like AI, go have fun. Why wouldn't you double check? Like if you're a freaking lawyer, right? Why wouldn't you just go and do a rando double check on one of them? Just say like, let's just check this out. Let's just see. Like, well, he's he's got an answer for that. Okay. Hit me. So According to Schwartz, because again, you know, he had to write this down. He said, the citations and opinions in question were provided by ChatGPT, which also provided its legal source and assured the reliability of its content. Oh, oh that's so that's no, that's fair <laughs> enough. That's fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> so it said this is reliable. And they went, oh, okay. <laughs> you could actually ask ChatGPT, is this reliable information? Yes, it is. Thank you very Actually, much. that is that is exactly what he did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would forgive an eleven-year-old, right? An eleven-year-old going, "Are you lying to me?" And ChatGPT going, "No, it's totally the truth." I would, I'd get that they would go for that, but you know, ChatGPT couldn't have its fingers crossed when it lies, so it would it would appear plausible and truthful. From what I read, it's not lying; it's helping. It's helping provide yeah, information. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So this is this is what it actually did. So it, the, the document actually contains excerpts. And at one point, Schwartz actually says, "Is Varghese a real case?" He asks ChatGPT. Right. Yes, says ChatGPT. <laughs> it's a real case. Of course, it is. And that is how you check your sources, children. <laughs> so he also asked ChatGPT if any of the other cases were fake, and it replied that they were all real. 
and that they could be found in reputable legal databases. And then it named the reputable legal databases where they could be found. I wonder if ChatGPT then sniggers in a way that we don't understand. Like there may be like a little a digital <laughs> snigger. <laughs> oh, see, there you go. Chat GPT, he. Oh, yeah, Chat GPT, he. Yeah, very good. So, anyway, so Schwartz had fallen for what artificial intelligence researchers euphemistically call hallucinations, which is what AI researchers call it when a large language model just flat out lies. That's unfair, that word. That's very human appropriation there. But anyway, okay. I'm still amused that his Schwartz have fallen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not even laughing at that. <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> so oh, this isn't this isn't even an isolated case. I mean, Schwartz is never going to do this again. I, I thought it's worth as well. I think I think the judge and everybody involved basically said, "Okay, well, you acted in good faith." I mean, they didn't say you were dumb, but you know that's implied. I think, but he, he's. I think he's going to be okay. Like, he's not going to do this again. Right. He's learned, he's learned a valuable lesson about ChatGPT. So you don't think he should be like disbarred for this? Like, shouldn't? No. Like, literally, going to ChatGPT, it's like me going to the web and going, hi, um, how do I make some trousers? And just clicking on the first link and then just following that and then being surprised they're not perfect. Well, I, I think it makes a difference that he didn't go to ChatGPT and say, could you make up some legal cases? Because mm. uh, he would surely know, as a as a lawyer, that the other lawyers are going to check what he'd put in the document. Like it's, it seems a poor strategy to just make stuff up. Are the other lawyers going to check though, or are the other lawyers just going to ask ChatGPT? <laughs> he was trying to cut corners. <laughs> he was. He said. He said it was very quick. <laughs> but then he went out to dinner, had yeah, a great time, making stuff up. Yeah, much quicker than doing the work. Yeah. Anyway, just yesterday, I was reading a Twitter thread by a law professor hmm. who was also using ChatGPT to find sources and quotes, and he said it was saving him hours of work. And this is how it sucks you in. He said, so he was he was thinking, wow, this is fantastic. This is a brilliant research tool. What have we been doing? And then at, at one point, one of the quotes struck him as odd. He was reading a quote by noted Republican Supreme Court Justice Judge Scalia, and he kind of thought that doesn't sound much like something Scalia would say. Uh, so he asked ChatGPT, he said, can you give me a link to that so I can check the source? And so yeah. ChatGPT did give him a link. Oh. It, just, it just didn't work. <laughs> it, it, it looked good. like it, it looked like a link that might work, but it didn't work. So then he asked again. And this is charming. Like ChatGPT apologized. And you see that in the other legal case I was mentioning as well, that he does actually say, oh, says, oh, I'm really sorry. Here's another lie. Uh, so anyway, he asked again, Chad GPT apologized, and it gave him to a, a link to a news story, and the news story did exist. It was just about something completely unrelated to the thing that he was asking about. What? So then he said, all right, well, if you can't give me a link to it, just give me the full text of the speech. So ChatGPT did. It just gave him the full text of the speech. It was just, just the whole thing was completely made up. And that... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, is the the real risk of AI. I mean, set aside, you know, future concerns about whether or not it's going to keep us as pets for now. <laughs> 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 
It's made up of all the flipping garbage we've slapped up on the internet for the last 15, 20 years. So, and yeah. Making up its own garbage from the sound of things. Yeah. It's, it's now generating garbage that future versions of ChatGPT will eat. Yep. In order to generate further garbage. More, more concentrated garbage. <laughs> As time goes on, the proportion of ChatGPT garbage in its own diet is only going to go up. Uh, thanks. Thank thanks, Mark. Cheery. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. No, no, it's I'm, I'm here to bring though. some sunshine into your yeah. life. You know, you know. <laughs> Crow, what have you got for us this week? Well, I have two teenage boys. Long-time pals, these two, okay, into football, electric vehicles, you know, live in the little suburb outside Cardiff in Wales, about five miles from the center of town. Not a deluxe suburb. So the town's called Ely. I don't know how to say it, actually, guys. E-L-Y. Oh, E-L-Y. Could be Ely, could be Ellie. Yeah. Hang on, it's in Wales, isn't it? It could be anything. I'm going to say Ely. I'm just going to say Ely. Okay. Apologies, Welsh people. <laughs> I'm going to ask ChatGPT. <laughs> so this isn't a deluxe suburb. This is known as Ely, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I hope. And uh, the area, okay, someone said it has a lot of deprivation, but also a very warm community. Okay, that's how it's been described. So it's late spring afternoon last Monday, just before 6 p.m. And one of the boys just had a haircut, bite to eat, and uh, went outside and met his friend and started messing around on an electric bike. Not just your e-bike here. This is a Sheeran electric motorcycle. And it was a recent birthday present. And one of them's driving, the other one's holding on, perched on the back. But something goes wrong, and there's a crash. And both boys, just 15 and 16, die as a result of this crash. Okay, and it happened in their neighborhood, like almost basically, you know, right near their house. So within minutes of this happening, the crash is reported to the cops. And there's a police vehicle, and they respond. And officers reported that they started doing CPR upon arriving at the scene, but to no avail. Now, obviously, this is a pretty harrowing scene. You have like two neighborhood boys who've been laughing and mucking about just 10 minutes ago. Crash is loud. People hear it, come out to see what's happened, right? I mean, you know, parents and neighborhood friends, they all come out to see what's going on. It's a community's worst nightmare. I can't think of anything much worse. And for the cops, it's got to be a nightmare too, right? I mean, these are kids. And there's probably a bunch of protocols that you've got to follow when something like this happens. And they know it's community's worst nightmare. So you've got like a lot of tension going on. So the problem is this, a riot flipping ensued, okay, until 3 a.m. the following morning. And the BBC reported that cars were set alight, fireworks were thrown at police as 100 to 150 people gathered in Ely on Monday night. Missiles were aimed at officers. 15 officers were injured, though none of the injuries were life-threatening. A local resident said he'd heard threats from rioters saying kill police officers at the scene. Quote, uh, they said they would not stop until they killed a police officer, unquote. Around eight o'clock that night, police tweet, right? They say they're still at the scene of the collision, but they're also working to de-escalate the ongoing disorder. It was even reported that one person was attacked because rioters thought they were an undercover officer, according to an officer at the scene. So, like, just chaos. 
Yeah, sounds like it's completely out of control. It's completely out of control. And like, so the question is like, what kicked this off? Well, from my reading, this is what I've got, right? So one, it could have been how the cops handled the situation upon arriving at the scene. Because according to reports, they wouldn't allow the parents to see their kids. You know, perhaps they are trying to preserve the scene to ensure there is no malicious intent or third party involvement or anything like that. But according to some reports, the cops didn't handle the growing crowds with maybe compassion. And considering they were looking at their own kids lying dead or their neighbor's kids on the road, that must be like a hugely difficult situation. It must be. But at the same time, if you're trying to save someone's life, you don't necessarily want the relatives all around, do you? possibly making the situation more complicated or they might be fainting or that you know totally if you're in a hospital i understand like i understand absolutely yeah. absolutely so you can just see it's just what it's just very intense. it's not easy for the police is all i'm saying from that point of view is that i agree it's one of those situations that pops up from time to time where you can put yourself in anybody's shoes in that in that scenario and everybody can be acting in good faith and and what they what they think are the best interests of the children, and you can you can still come to I was going to say disagreement, but clearly it was escalated beyond that. But you can you can end up with very very different answers to the same question by being in different people's shoes. But you can even feel the the feeling here. Like this is a quote of someone, an onlooker. Like they wouldn't let the parents do nothing. It was disgusting how they treated them, and they made them walk home and give them the news in the house. Didn't give them any sort of news at the scene. They were there for hours, waiting and waiting, and they wouldn't let them through to see if their son was okay. It was really, really bad. Hmm. So this could have angered the community enough to kick off and scare the bejesus out of local residents who were hiding indoors. Mm-hmm. Like there's Jane Palmer, right? Owner of a Ford Focus. Jane said she and her family had watched from their window as rioters set fire to her car. And she's like, I'm disabled. So now I'm trapped without a car. But it could have been this little discrepancy. So this is a video and it's very short. And the video basically was reportedly taken at a house where a relative of one of the boys lives. And it shows a bike traveling along Frank Road in Ely at 5.59 p.m. on Monday, the night of the fatal accident. And it's less than one mile from the suspected crash site. And you see this bike go by and there's two boys on the bike. And then you see a police van about 15 metres behind it. Yeah, I've seen this video. Yeah, it it kind of zips past the house, doesn't it? And it's almost, I don't know if it's a security camera from the house or whether it's someone actually recording from inside the house. I I wasn't clear about that. But it appears that the the police car is, well, the police van is in pursuit of these two kids on their uh, e-bike. Exactly. Like if I'd seen that, I'd be like, okay, so the guy, you know, these kids are, are, you know, having fun, whatever, and they've pissed off the cops somehow, and they're kind of trying to bring them to an arrest, perhaps. And then suddenly... And 15 feet is very close. Yeah, 15 meters, sorry, 15 meters. Yeah, but still, super close. And then you hear the crash in the video, like you hear this thing happen. But here's the weird thing. Police officers say that none of their vehicles were on Snowden Road when the crash happened. The investigation has involved studying CCTV and tracking data from the police vehicle. And at this stage, we do not believe that any other vehicle was involved in the crash. The the news story I read said that 
the video was taken maybe in the street where they lived or something, and the crash was a few streets away when uh, the police claimed they were no longer in pursuit of the vehicle uh, of, of this £5,000 e-bike, uh, which the kids were on. So it is possible the police, may, maybe, the, maybe the kids on the bike lost the police who were chasing them and the police went the wrong way or something like that. And then they came a cropper. Yeah, there's so much involved. So the South Wales Police and Crime Commissioner said it appeared that incorrect rumours on social media that a police pursuit had led to the crash that killed the teenagers was wrong. So they're saying that never happened. And they, they say, quote, it appears they were rumours, and those rumours became rife of a police chase, uh, which wasn't the case. This is from the crime commissioner. I think it illustrates the speed which rumours can go around with the activity that goes on social media these days and how things can get out of hand. So he's saying the riot was a result of false information travelling on socials, on the socials. I think what the police are saying is that their data shows that the cyclists took a shortcut which the police were unable to follow them down or had lost them by that point. So they ended up at the time of the crash, which was like at three minutes past six or something, they were some distance away from the kids who were having the crash. Although initially, the problem was that initially the police said there wasn't any pursuit at all. They exactly. They gave that suggestion, but when the video emerged, they then kind of went, well, maybe we had been but we weren't at the time of the crash. So the crash took place a few minutes later. But all this does not, so there's confusion that's come up. So it makes sense to me, like if you were already in a place where you don't trust cops, right? You're like, you know, you're, there's distrust between cops and a community, for instance, that may be existing in this place. And your initial reaction is to deny it and then admit it. I'm worried that it only served to inflame the situation. And I, I think one of the things that social media has given us is there's, there is so much information on so many things all of the time that it's very, very difficult to deal with people and things in their entirety. And so I think one of the most pernicious effects is that we now have a, we have a way of looking at organizations as if they are monolithic, as if they are individuals and that they have perfect recall and perfect lines of mm. instant communication. So we have all worked in organizations. I mean, I've, I've worked in an organization of two and had problems with miscommunication. Like it happens as soon as there's more than one of you. And if you're in a large organization, it's not, it's not at all outlandish to suggest that one part of the organization might say something, believing it to be true, and it later turns out that it's not true, particularly when you're, move, you're in a highly emotive, fast-moving situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's not forget at 10 Downing Street when we had uh, senior politicians dealing with the COVID epidemic and plenty of people accused them of having parties and breaking swings and bringing alcohol to uh, karaoke machines. This is the other side of it. Other people had a completely different impression of what was going I mean, they were doing important, essential work. And some people thought this was a problem. I wonder whether, it, you know, this situation may be more about how the cops arriving at the scene may have handled family members and onlookers as they arrive. Like, 
it's obviously a super stressful situation, but surely dealing with that kind of immediate shock and grief should be in police training, right? To be able to do it in a way that somehow de-escalates intense feelings of hate. I, I, I don't know enough about police training to, to comment on whether or not they include that kind of thing or not. Yeah, no, me neither. Fair. But I do feel sorry for, like, whatever training you have, it, you then have to map it to a real-world situation. And you can't train for every possible scenario. And if you're a police officer, then you're training for scenarios where you turn up and somebody might be trying to kill you, or, you know, somebody's having a mental health crisis, or, you know, somebody's had a terrible accident. And what, what, there will never be enough training. So you will always have people in a, in a situation where they are trying to extrapolate from the training they have to the situation that's in front of them. Now, maybe they turned up and they did a terrible job. Maybe they turned up and they did a decent job, but it, it wasn't to the satisfaction of the people around them. If I was in that crowd, if I, my children were involved in an accident, nothing would be getting between me and my children. I imagine that any parent in that crowd would feel the same way. So uh, to, to me, it just sounds like a flashpoint that you're, you have all the ingredients for something to kick off. You know, bad, bad things can happen to good people, unfortunately. 100%. And the two other take the main takeaways here is from from that you know the kids were not wearing helmets on the bike according to reports and according to the visual I saw so you know so please always wear a helmet and two I was thanking God that guns are illegal in the UK because after watching this I don't know what would have happened in a place where guns were allowed like no no one died in the riot that ensued. So. Carol, I hope you haven't inflamed any of our listenership by uh, bringing the gun debate into this. Of course I haven't. <laughs> They're just rolling their eyes and go, she knows nothing. <laughs> Smashing Security is brought to you by Centripetal. Centripetal is the global leader in intelligence-powered cybersecurity. The company operationalizes the world's largest collection of threat intelligence in real time to protect your company from every known cyber threat. Now available as a cloud-based deployment, Centripetal's clean internet service is a revolutionary approach to defending your assets from cyber threats by leveraging dynamic threat intelligence on a mass scale. The addition of AWS Clean Internet Cloud protects your enterprise, whether on-premise, remote, or in the cloud, removing the need for a more costly cybersecurity infrastructure. Learn more about Centripetal's intelligence-powered cybersecurity solutions at smashingsecurity.com slash centripetal. That's C-E-N-T-R-I-P-E-T-A-L. And thanks to Centripetal for sponsoring the show. Now, there's some big news from our sponsor, Collide. If you are an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet up to 100% compliant. How do they do that, you're asking yourself? Well, if a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, which is device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecured devices are logging into your company's apps because there's nothing there to stop them. 
Collide is the only device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions on how to fix it. If they don't fix the problem, within a set time, they are blocked. Collide means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. Visit collide.com slash smashing to learn more or to book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash smashing. Smashing security listeners, did you know that Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, or at work? Bitwarden's password manager securely stores credentials spanning across personal and business worlds. And every Bitwarden account begins with the creation of a personal vault, which allows you to store all your personal credentials. These are unique and secure passwords for every single account you access. And it's easy to set up. It's easy to use. I honestly love Bitwarden. I use it at home, use it at work, use it on the go. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan at bitwarden.com forward slash smashing. Or you can even try it for free across devices as an individual user. Check it out at bitwarden.com forward slash smashing. And thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring the show. And welcome back. And you join us our favourite part of the show, the part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses something they like. could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website or an app. Whatever they wish. It doesn't have to be security related necessarily. Better not be. Well, my Pick of the Week this week is not security related. My Pick of the Week this week was recommended to me by an avid listener to the podcast who said, have you seen this show on Netflix? It's called Black Butterflies. You might like Mm -hmm. it. I said, what's it about? And they told me, and I thought, oh, I wouldn't like that at all. They, oh, no, I don't know. They said, oh, they said, it's it's sort of a bit serial killery. It's a bit, (laughs) it's a bit, oh, goodness. No, I don't want to watch that. Anyway, somehow or other, I started to watch it. And by gum, it was good. And it is called Black Butterflies. Or in the original French, Les Papillons Noirs. And let me give you the central premise. There is a novelist with writer's block. He is invited to visit a dying man who wants his memoirs ghostwritten. And he begins to tell this writer the story of his life. And it starts off as a lovely sort of romance uh, between this old man and when he was young and the love of his life and their career in around the French Riviera in the 1970s. And then it's begins to turn rapidly into a tale of rather twisted serial killing. And most of the show is taking place in different timelines, two different timelines, 70s and the present day. But you never feel lost. It's very well done. It's a psychological thriller. It's definitely not for kids, so there are some very graphic scenes. But I have to say, it was brilliant. Really well acted. Lots of surprising twists, great music. I'm sure I've seen this. Is this old? This is old. I think it may have come out last year. I mean, you may maybe are more up to date on the Netflix shows than me. So it's very imaginative cinematographically wise. <laughs> and it kept me gripped until the end because there's, there's lots of twists. 
and I thought it was rather good. It's definitely, can I underline again? It's not for kids. <laughs> the person who recommended it to me told me that their son walked in while they were watching it and they had some difficult explaining to do um, uh, as to what on earth they were watching. So be careful. Don't watch it with kids. But even though it's about, even though it's about butterflies. <laughs> it's called Black Butterflies. I watched this with John. I'm sure we did watch it, but I can't It seems like the kind of thing you would have watched, Carol. Yeah. yeah. I can believe it. Anyway, I would really recommend it. So go and check it out. You can either watch it dubbed or with subtitles, depending on your particular persuasion. Um, I greatly enjoyed it. So that is my pick of the week. Mark, what's your pick of the week? So you know that I like to come on here, and normally my pick of the week has some sort of environmental theme. Ocean <laughs> cleanup. I think I did trees once. Soil. Nature. Yes. Soil, Yeah. Gen- generally, sort of climate apocalypse, uh, wouldn't it be great if we didn't all die um, and burn to death? Chickens. Things about chickens. You're quite keen on chickens. Uh, my my book today is not about that. Well, I have discovered an entirely different form of apocalypse to worry about. Uh, and so <laughs> so, so my pick of the week today is about that. Uh, and it's, it's a book. It's called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Global oh, Civilization. And it's by Peter Zihan. Uh, Peter Zihan does fantastic YouTube videos. If you want a sort of intro, he releases one a day. They're about five minutes long. Go look for him. It's fascinating stuff. And he is he is a geopolitical uh, strategist. But his real thing is demographics. So his shtick is all about the demographics of the world and how the demographics essentially global demographics are going to change the way the world is made up over the course of the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. So according to him, we're in a very interesting situation at the moment whereby uh, birth rates across the world have collapsed. So broadly speaking, the earlier you industrialize, the slower your birth rate collapses. And the quicker you industrialize, the quicker your birth rate collapses. Because when you industrialize, when, when you have a, an agrarian economy, you generally have as many children as you can because children are free labor. And then when you move into an urban environment, you have many, many fewer children because children are incredibly expensive until they leave home in an urban setting. Um, and also you get things like social security. coming. You don't need children to look after you in old age. So the net result is always a reduction in birth rates. And what's happened is that the countries like the UK, which industrialized first, its birth rate has been declining very, very slowly. And countries that industrialized after, say, World War II, like South Korea, their birth rate has been collapsing very, very quickly. And what's happened is that everybody's birth rate has kind of synchronized at a point where right now, the largest generation is about to tick over into retirement. And that has all sorts of effects on things like global capital uh, and employment, because you think, well, suddenly you're going from a situation where you have a large, knowledgeable workforce with lots of capital to spend on things to a large group of retirees who want to hold on to their money being supported by a much, much smaller group of employees. And those, that small group of employees is being followed by an even smaller group each generation has had fewer children. So, you know, you get a small generation, it has a, a small, uh, it has a small generation of children. And so we, we are just now tipping over into this uh, very interesting world. And his conjecture is that that is going to have all kinds of 
um, very, very dramatic effects. And the TLDR is, unless you live in the US, Argentina, or France, or one of a very small number of other countries, uh, it's going to be a very rough couple of decades. Oh, great. Sounds like an interesting book, Mark. Are there any jokes in it at all? Any jokes? Yeah, there's a there is there is there is no good news in this book <laughs> at all. Oh no! <laughs> L- literally none. I'm right. very sorry, but it's oh, just thanks. A- thanks. Thanks for bringing it to our. It's attention. a shit show. Thanks. <laughs> Maybe next time we'll have the chicken in the soil and the cleaning up the oceans. What's the, what's the name of the book again? It's called "The End of the World Is Just the Beginning" by Peter Zihan. Thank you very much, Crow. What's your pick of the week? <laughs> Uh, well, I'll bring us out of the doldrums. Um, do either of you know what a proven hangover cure is? Yes. Not, what? Not drinking. Not drinking. I've been doing it 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's very good. Boom, boom. Okay. If you were to perhaps imbibe. Is it a lobotomy? Is it? Is it? <laughs> is it death? What? Okay, okay, so the answer, when you don't know, Clue, it's really easy. You just say, no. Oh, okay. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, t- I can tell you, what, I tell you what it isn't. It isn't trying to watch the Wimbledon final on TV. <laughs> I've, I've tried that. I've tried that. It really doesn't help. What about flossing and brushing? Is that good for your teeth? Oh, it's meant to be good for everything, isn't it? Having a good floss. Oh, interesting. And what about anti-aging creams? Do they really work? Just look at us, Carol. Thing that tells you everything. <laughs> <laughs> See, these are interesting questions. You can discover all these answers and tidbits on a podcast called Science Versus. It's from Gimlet Media and a show hosted by Wendy Zuckerman, who has the most charming Australian accent to my mind. She's super bubbly, funny, and smart. Hmm. How, how do they find out these answers? Do they go to chat GPT by any chance and ask it these questions? No, no. They take on fads and like, you yeah. know, trends, opinions and stuff. And then they find out what's real and what's maybe somewhere in between. Hmm. It's like friendly fact checkers is what uh, they call themselves. And I think that's a fair statement. That's quite cute. So, so for example, when they go for hangover cures, they talk to loads of experts. And the end result of that was basically uh, eat a huge meal before you start drinking. And uh, flossing and brushing, not necessarily good for your teeth. Fluoride is good for your teeth. Fluoride is the only thing that protects your teeth. Everything else is good for your gums, which are obviously important. Oh, trick question, right? A bit of a quick question, yeah. I agree. And anti-aging creams is really interesting because a lot of it um, is because the the, 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 the the molecules inside the creams are too big because they're not fat-based, they're water-based. So they don't go into your skin at all. The only one that can is retinol, and you need to get it by prescription to have any effect at all. So this is the kind of stuff I've learned. You may agree or disagree. I loved it. Are you saying, are you saying that those graphics on the skincare adverts where they have pink blobs crossing the skin barrier and are you saying that that isn't strictly (laughs) accurate they actually did a test because they said well how do they get these results right on these you know these makeup ads like you know seven out of ten women agree you know these kind of things so they just made up some own their own concoction sent it off for for a thousand bucks to get you know tested and it came back saying amazing 100 percent works like a charm amazing amazing so um they just go and maybe show how things may not be as you think so we we could set up an aging cream testing organisation. And make 
they could send it to us. Give us a thousand bucks. And we say, yes, brilliant. I look gorgeous. Yes, if you want to be a schmuck, that's exactly what we would do. (laughs) Would you like to know what ChatGPT thinks we can do about Hangover? Yes. Oh, come on, please. Because while we were talking, I asked. I said, I said, what's a good hangover cure? And I, have you ever used ChatGPT? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because you'll know it does like to give like wordy answers. <laughs> so anyway, blah, 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 blah. Several strategies, blah, blah. I can't alleviate the symptoms. No magical cure, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, there's a list of eight things. Hydration. Mm. Rest. Mm-hmm. Oh. Nutritious, nutritious food. I think you mentioned that one. Mm-hmm. Electrolytes, mm-hmm. ginger and peppermint can alleviate nausea and soothe an upset stomach. Apparently, according to Jack GPT, pain relievers, genius. Mm-hmm. Oh, that uh, is clever. L- light exercise, and here's the here's the kicker: avoid caffeine. <laughs> well, so this is this is essentially basically what's happened here is Chat GPT has just watched me on a Sunday morning when I was at college <laughs> <laughs> and turn I off just, Wimbledon. I just, <laughs> You know, the podcast Science Versus should change its name to Science Versus ChatGPT. They've got a whole new show there. Um, it's a great show. Check it out. It's fun. And it has a bit, bit of a, you know, it's kind of lighthearted, but, you know, you come away with a few little cute tidbits. So Science Versus, find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's my pick of the week. Thank you very much, Carol. Now, you've had a very busy week this week. You've been chatting to our friends at Centripetal. Yes, I chatted with Dave Ons and we talk about the cloud and how it revolutionized how we work, but it also has changed how the attackers come and find us. Take a listen. Well, listeners, we have the pleasure of chatting with Centripetal's chief architect, David Ahn. Centripetal focuses on threat prevention using real-time intelligence with automated enforcement. And today we are talking to the guy who builds and ships this stuff. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to speak with us today, Dave. Wow, Carol, what an intro. Uh, Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it it gets worse because you, out of all the job titles that I know in the tech sector, my favorite one is chief architect because it's it's got gravitas, right? (laughs) It's serious. And I'd love to know about some of your responsibilities, but maybe you could first tell us, how did you end up at Centripetal as their chief architect? So the journey actually started quite a while ago. I actually started a, a number of startups so I innovate a lot of technology around healthcare and, and cybersecurity and computer algorithms and things like that. And one of the companies that, that I helped to start was a cybersecurity company. Uh, and, and we developed uh, this amazing filtering technology. And that technology was great, but it, you know, there wasn't a strong product synergy around it. And so when uh, I met with, uh, with Stephen Rogers, Centripetal CEO at the time, Mm. He really, uh, really put forth his vision of putting intelligence as a driving force around cybersecurity. And, you know, Centripetal needed a capability to, to do that enforcement. And so it was a great marriage in terms of technology and two different companies. And, and so I came to Centripetal uh, in the very beginning uh, as part of an acquisition. And, uh, and I stayed through to really commercialize uh, that technology and, and bring it to the product that it is today. So it's, a, it's been an amazing journey. Yeah, it sounds like a marriage made in heaven. Uh, <laughs> tell me, so tell me, like, you know, do you spend your day in meetings or do you have other responsibilities other than guiding and helping everyone do their jobs? 
So, uh, I, well, yes, there are lots of meetings, um, but <laughs> I run one of the divisions here at Centripetal Intelligence Services. And so, you know, my group is responsible for really identifying that intelligence, kind of figuring out what to do and helping to to ingest it and, and, and produce uh, really actionable portions of it for the rest of our products. So, so that's a big area around data, data science, you know, analytics and so forth, informatics, right. and then kind of mapping that into how do you design systems? You know, there are many different systems that makes the solution possible. And, uh, and so I, I help to lead with, with a lot of my colleagues who are, who are leaders in this space to, to build an end-to-end you know, solution. It's very challenging, very diverse, lots of exposure, and you're probably right, lots of meetings. (laughs) (laughs) But it must have changed a lot over the years because, you know, most businesses today, from like the tiny ones to midsize to the massive, massive internationals, they're all reliant on cloud to function. Can I say even function today? Is that fair? I, I think that's fair. I mean, it's it's just so uh, so ingrained and kind of you know permeating through all of of you know IT and technology today. So I think you're right. I would say that the shift must also it changes how organizers have to operate, obviously, but it must also change how the malicious hacker approaches a target. Oh, absolutely. You know, so, so, you know, cloud technologies and platforms and services have just been so transformative. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, well over a decade old now in terms of the beginnings, mm. but uh, it's just in the last maybe decade or so where it just has gotten so much adoption. I think it's gotten really mature. Right. So, you know, if you think about how even, you know, that coffee shop to, you know, to a larger enterprise where they can really shift the burden of managing hardware, data centers, maybe, infrastructure software and focusing on how do they deliver solutions, how do they create product or how do they solve internal challenges. And they're able to do this through the cloud because it, the cloud makes this computing resources so accessible mm-hmm. and also scalable, right? I mean, you don't have to worry about patching OSs or patching this or that and, and figuring out how to deploy and setting up data centers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it is transformative and you know all it takes is you know an individual you know with a credit card to stand up a website or put up a a video or anything like that and it's just amazing in terms of accessibility of technology to enterprises and that in and of itself of course that power ends up being accessible to all the malicious actors and the complexity around that right and there are cloud providers who may be a bit more um, accommodating or maybe tolerant of malicious activity, you know, in, in certain areas of the world. But but having said that, uh, you know, most of these cloud services are meant to be accessible. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, all you need is a credit card and a lot of times for free accounts. And, and certainly they're very cheap. So when you think about these malicious actors, they're becoming more sophisticated. Right? So they know how to write programs. They know how to modify malware. They know how to carry out campaigns and, and, and you know, social um, you know, engineering and so forth. And so they're adapting to the fact that because so many organizations are adopting cloud infrastructure, then that's where the value is. That's where the opportunity is. Because if all the data is in the cloud, if all the services are in the cloud, then that's where they need to to attack to get the most, uh, let's say, return for their efforts. Yeah, good old R- R- ROI. So, okay, <laughs> how, how has this changed things for you from the security side? Because, of course, you, as Centripetal's chief architect, had to adapt in order to properly protect organizations. So can you talk a little bit about how you guys approach security in this new world? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the 
biggest challenges for organizations around cloud security is just difficulty in visibility and difficulty in understanding. So it's not mm-hmm. that there isn't understanding. It's just that, I mean, if you think about, you know, um, you know, roles or access controls or things like that, it's very easy to say, well, you've got to put those controls in. However, when you have hundreds to thousands of options and, and it just gets explosively combinatoric uh, when it comes to, you know, the infrastructure, the virtualization, the containers and the software, the gazillions of, of things that are running in the cloud, then it's so difficult for normal organizations or typical organizations to get a handle on what the repercussions are, right? So if they, let's say, have a setting up in, in terms of user access or application access, what does that really mean throughout the cloud infrastructure? Because everything is is being managed by these cloud providers and therefore there isn't as much visibility understanding. And so to attack this problem, I mean, in cybersecurity, it's it's a big challenge. I mean, if you look at, you know, all the breaches, a lot of the breaches that have occurred in, in recent years, mm. so many of them are have some sort of cloud component to it. And it just lends itself to the gaps in knowledge and gaps in visibility and gaps in control that exist that are really hard to fill. And so it's it's a challenge for us in, in cybersecurity. Yeah, because, you know, I used to work in a technology firm. And even back then, this is basically pre-cloud days, but you, the tech staff were overburdened with, you know, servers going down or machine equipment going down. And now that's not the problem so much. There's just so many accounts and so many ways for people to access data. How does a, a, someone responsible for allowing network access and information access not uh, feel overburdened? I think that's a, a key problem. It's just overburdening of, of that information overload or complexity overload. And so there are tools, um, you know, that, that have kind of started to fill this niche uh, over the years where they give you uh, observability, I think, telemetry and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the challenges I see with a lot of these products is that sometimes they actually end up producing even more work, right? So they give you unbelievable visibility into every activity that's happening across the entire cloud infrastructure for a customer, right? And now we're talking about unbelievable amounts of log data, how do you interpret it and how do you do audits and how do you do an analysis of all this data? And and so, you know, this is where a lot of, um, you know, lately, of course, in, in recent months, there's been, you know, this trend around leveraging AI on automation and, you know, these advanced techniques to kind of manage the interpretation of that volume. Mm. But that doesn't take away the fact that there is that volume. Mm. So it's, it's, it is a significant challenge. And I, I hope that even cloud providers and, and cybersecurity vendors are kind of stepping, are able to step up to the plate and make those cybersecurity controls a little bit more easier to understand and easier to manage. I mean, let's, let's not place the burden on, on the, uh, on the enterprise, you know, that, that poor person who's <laughs> dealing with so much of the data. <laughs> so how do you guys do that at Centripetal? How do you guys manage that? So we, uh, we've taken the approach that, uh, that sometimes information uh, should just be interpreted by those with that knowledge, right? So instead of attacking this from the angle of let's give another tool, let's give uh, more information, let's give more capacity and then saying, well, you enterprise, you need to go figure out how to use this tool, have to figure out how to 
choose the data and how to interpret it and how to mm. analyze it and, and then figure out the reporting aspects of it. And instead, we bring that as a service. So, and I think you've seen this a lot, you know, in, in the industry with maybe the growth of the managed you know, security service providers where they're bringing in that expertise to fill that gap. So Centripetal, we're working towards that where we're bringing in the intelligence, we're bringing in the enforcement capability, and we're bringing in the analysts who can help to interpret and really shift that burden away from, from the from the customer. And the whole plus side of it is you get some, re- you're using real time intelligence to block unwanted traffic before it gets to the network. I mean, that's the end game, right? Oh, that is the end game. So, you know, if you think about intelligence, it, you know, it, it tells you what all those malicious actors, you know, where they are, what infrastructure they're using, you know, what the, what methodologies that they are leveraging. And, you know, today these, these malicious campaigns are becoming so much faster, right? So they're, as I mentioned before, we talked about before, you know, they're, they're leveraging cloud infrastructure and mm-hmm. they're automating and they're able to carry out these attacks in, you know, a matter of minutes to an hour, you know, or, or so. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, then, you know, if you, if you have this information, but you don't have it at the moment that you need it, which is maybe right now when you're under attack or 15 minutes from now when you're getting scanned, mm-hmm. then that intelligence doesn't do you any good. So whether it's Centripetal or, or others, they, this this concept of leveraging that intelligence as soon as you can, as 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 in as real time as you can, that is is really the differentiator in terms of elevating the security posture. It makes perfect sense. Is there anything you'd like to add? I really encourage everyone to take a proactive stance, and and I understand that. A lot of the time, there's just so much technology and so many products and solutions, mm. and everybody is saying that they can solve the problem. But I, I encourage you know everyone to look at it from the perspective of what are my pain points and what can I do proactively to help reduce the work that I have to do? Because if you don't reduce that workload, then all the security in the world may be producing all those alerts and things like that, but it doesn't help you when you don't see it in front of you and it's not helping you to, to actually protect your enterprise. I think that's such a good point. And I think actually being able to identify your pain points is key because, you know, the security market now is a bit like walking into Walmart and there's only, <laughs> you know, cola on sale and you're walking down these aisles going, I don't know which one. So if you know exactly what you want, um, it helps narrow the field. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I, it, I, I think you have to start with um, owning that cybersecurity a little bit, you know, and, and saying, all right, these are my pain points and, and just be objective about how difficult it is because it is, it's difficult. Yeah. And what can you do? The maximum return for the, the steps that you take forward. I think that's the only practical way to really go about doing this. Well, I think a very good step for our listeners is to check out Centripetal's uh, webpage, which we have linked because you can learn much more about their technology and services. And you can do that by visiting smashingsecurity.com slash Centripetal. That's C-E-N-T-R-I-P-E-T-A-L. That's smashingsecurity.com forward slash Centripetal. And huge thank you, David Ahn, Centripetal's chief architect, for coming on the show. See, I love saying that. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, have a good day. Not too many meetings, I hope. Fascinating stuff. Well, that just about wraps up the show for this week. Mark, I'm sure lots of our listeners would love to follow you online and find out what you're ranting about. What is the best way for folks to do that? (laughs) 
<laughs> you can find me at Mark Stockley on Twitter. You can also find me at Internet of Hens on Twitter if you prefer the sort of trees and general apocalypse preparation type stuff. Fantastic. And you can follow us on Twitter at Smash Insecurity. No G. Twitter and last have a G. We also have a Mastodon account. Find us at smashinsecurity.com slash Mastodon. And make sure never to miss another episode. Follow Smash Insecurity in your favourite podcast apps such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Overcast. And massive shout out to this episode's sponsors, Collide, Centripetal, and Bitwarden, and of course to our wonderful Patreon community. It's thanks to them all. This show is free. For episode show notes, sponsorship info, guest list, and the entire back catalogue of more than 323 episodes, check out smashingsecurity.com. Until next time, cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. dealt with some pretty serious issues this week bloody hell did we <laughs> yeah i know goodness but you know shit happens clue well yes i know sometimes we gotta talk about it oh yeah it's a, uh, thank god we have you to just bring a bit of lightness to our life like that's that's what my purpose is really isn't it to bring a little bit of joy in this miserable world <laughs> on this on this miserable podcast <laughs> this miserable world <laughs> thank you very much mark thank you mark you're welcome It was lovely. Look after yourself. I will. Thank you very much. And you. And uh, good luck.